This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Rabbi Wallerstein. I guess it's on the, on, the, on the outside of the door. So I just got off a plane from America, and some of the Tamidim that are here are my students from, uh, from America, and they asked me to speak. When I really looked at my schedule, being that tomorrow night is Iridium Kippur, tomorrow is Iridium Kippur, I really felt, you know, that um, it would just be too hard for me. To you know, to come speak tonight, supposed to do kaparas, a lot of other things. But then I thought about, um, I had a thought, and I said, you know what? If I can get come here and I can speak to you guys, I'm going to make it my business to get here. And I'll tell you what the thought is. So I'm very close to a rabbi here in Yerushalayim. His name is Rabbi Gamliel Rabinovich. I don't know if any of you know him. He's my rabbi. He's my teacher. And I've been here for oh boy, uh, since my brother is 11, he's 52. So, 41 years I've been here for Yom Kippur in a row. One, I missed one. So, I'm very into being in Eretz Yisrael by the Kaisal Fani Eli and Yom Kippur. I've been doing it for a very long time. And I always ask my Rebbe, so, you know, he's a big Makubo, yeah, he's a Rosh Hashiva Shari Shemayim. I'm sure he can see things that I can't see. So, I ask him always, I go to him Matzah Yom Kippur, I say, so, did I pray good? Did, did, was, I, was it accepted? Are they happy with me in Shemayim? That's my question always. Are they happy with my Yom Kippur? So he always gives me the same answer. He says, come back and ask me next year. I said, what do you mean? He says, next year, you'll see. If you had a good year, then you know. You prayed good last year. I can't tell you until you have the year. So I was very happy, you know. Made it to the next year. I'm alive. Making a living. You know, everyone's good. So I guess it was a good Yom Kippur. So I guess if we all look back, so whatever we were doing last year, Yom Kippur, and we had this year in Arsimeach, I'm going to plug a little, and learning and healthy, everything seems to be working. You all can see and hear, Baruch Hashem. So you're alive. Many people that were here last Yom Kippur are not here anymore. And they passed away this year, many people. But you are all here. So it must mean you had a good Yom Kippur last year. I'm here to tell you that everyone in this room had a miserable Yom Kippur last year. Miserable. Now, you're thinking, uh-oh. Who does this guy think he is? I don't even know him. Gets off a plane. Comes to our Sameach. We're killing ourselves. We're growing. We're working. Last year I fasted. I don't know what I did. I stood on my head the whole Neila. Whatever I did... How can he really have the nerve to walk in here? He doesn't even know me. And say that I had a miserable year last year. Right? But anyone who knows me knows I have a lot of nerve. So I'm going to explain to you what I'm saying. The Jewish nation is all connected. For instance, if a person, let's say, broke his toe, you guys were playing basketball and some guy stepped on your toe and he broke it, you start screaming, my toe, I can't believe it, my toe. You go running to a doctor, you come in, and you're screaming in pain. And he says, stop screaming. And you're like, are you crazy? My toe, it's broken, it's swollen. I can't get my sneaker on. Are you out of your mind? He says, why would you break? My toe. What are you screaming for? You, no, no one hit you in the mouth. What are you using your mouth for? Like your toe scream. Your toe's broken, not your mouth. So you look at me like I'm crazy, right? And you would definitely walk out of the doctor's office and say, you're not doing my x-rays. Something wrong with this guy, right? But the truth is, 
Why are you screaming if your toe is broken? And the answer is because if your toe is broken, your whole body's in pain. And, and the way to express the pain in your body, whether it's your toe or a backache or whatever it is, the way to express it is not through the aver, the limb that's in pain. The way that we express pain is through our mouth. No matter where you get hurt, when you scream, it's coming out of your mouth, not out of your toe, not out of your back, not out of your ear. So, Kla Yisrael, the Jewish nation, is one body. There's a lot of Kabbalah on Adam, size of the world. We're all one body. Every guy in here is a different piece of the body. You figure out what piece of the body you are. That's your, that's your, you figure it out. I'm not going to tell you. We're all a different, a different cell in this, in this body. When one part of the body is hurting, the whole body is hurting. Yom Kippur, we scream from our mouth, the whole Kalias row, because no matter where the body is hurting, the way to express our pain to Hashem and to ask for help can only come through the mouth. And many of the avarim, of the limbs, guys, that are in pain, are people who you don't even know, people who don't know anything about Judaism, people that are assimilated. They're Jews. They don't know how to express their pain to Hashem. They don't even know who Hashem is. I was giving a class outside of New York, and I was talking about the Rebunish level. The Rebunish level of this, and the Rebunish level of that. And after the share, a woman came up to me and said, Who's this guy to rebunish on you keep talking about? And I realized I should have said God. I was using, you know, Hebrew words, Yiddish words, whatever it was. It should be. So there are many people out there that are broken toes and broken arms and broken legs. And they can't even express their pain. But every Jew and every guy in this room is part of that mouth of the Jewish nation because every guy in this room knows there's a God, knows that he's a Jew or he wouldn't be in this room. Therefore, on Yom Kippur, whether it's Hebrew or English or Yiddish, it doesn't make a difference how you express the pain of Klai Yisrael, as long as you express the pain of Klai Yisrael. Therefore, I would like to say, and again, I'm going to ask Mechila before I really speak, if I'm opening up any wounds in anyone's heart or soul, or I'm saying something that hurts you, it's not meant to hurt anyone in this room. I don't know most of you. I definitely have no reason to hurt you. The few guys that I do know definitely have reason to hurt and I'll hurt them but that's a separate situation <laughs> but I'm not here to hurt anybody I'm here and the reason I'm speaking to you is because we, ha- we have to do something this Yom Kippur that we haven't done till now so I wrote a little list and you guys tell me how well we daven how well we daven last year you answer the question after I read you the list okay so this year how many children Jewish children died from cancer how many children walked into a doctor's office thinking they had a little problem and found out that it was a life-threatening problem? How many children were in Camp Simcha this summer? How many girls and how many boys? Camps were full. How many children were born with Down syndrome this year? How many children were in Camp Hask this summer? If we all would have prayed the way we were supposed to, if we would have healed the whole body, there would not be children with cancer or Down syndrome children or children with disabilities. One of my Talmudim became a Rebbe. One of my students became a Rebbe. He told me before I got on the plane, he said, Rebbe, I just want you to know that I have 12 kids in my class. I said, great. How are you doing? He says, I'm trying. I said, what's going on? He says, every single one of the 12 kids is on medication. 
So you have 12 kids in seventh grade, and you're telling me every single kid is on medication? This is Rebbe, either Ritalin or Concerta. There's not a kid in my class that's not on medication. So are we healed? Did we dive in good luck, Yom Kippur? Did Kaisal pull it off? No. Just to go on with the list. Children losing parents, parents losing children, children physically abused, children mentally abused, teenagers on drugs, children on drugs, teenagers and Jewish people disconnected from their parents totally, from their teachers, from Hashem, children out of school. You know how many, I'm sorry, you know how many children that are still now, when I came here to Eretz Yisrael, that I am still girls and boys that have not gotten into yeshiva yet? They're on the streets of New York. They're not even in yeshiva. So, like, the, the system, what's going on in Klai Yisrael, if you look back to last Yom Kippur, what, what, exactly, what exactly did we improve? Did we wipe anything off this list? And the list is very, very long. Girls and boys not married. Older girls and older boys trying to get married. 29, 30, 35, not married. I went to Rav Steinman and to Rav Chaim Kainesky, the two Gidoyle Dar, and I said to them, you know, I want to be a big shot. I want to tell them what I do. I said, you know, I have a place called Ornava. I have 2,500 girls that come to a night program in New York. And Rav Chaim said to me, what, are they, what do you do there? I said, Kirov. He said, Kirov. Zivugim. Shiduchim. Forget the Kirov. Get them married. You hear? Because they're broken girls and broken boys. They're going out, they're going out, they're going out. They're diving to Hashem every Yom Kippur, every Rosh They're praying, they're praying, they're praying. It doesn't go. Do you know how many organizations are out there open up a Jewish press collecting money for, for Jewish couples who do not have children? Never before. I'm, I'm a businessman half the day. My door, doorbell does not stop. I need $10,000. I need in vitro. We don't have children. I need $10,000. We need in vitro. We don't have children. Do you know a doctor? Do you know how many Jewish people don't have children? You open up a Jewish press or a Jewish magazine. When I, when I was a kid, I grew up there's no such thing as an abuse hotline, Shalom Task Force for women who are abused, an Aguna hotline for Jewish women who can't get a divorce. What's going on, man? What's going on here? So Yom Kippur was good last year? Did we eradicate any of these problems? So you tell me it's not my problem? Bokshem, I don't have cancer? But it is your problem. It's your toe. It's we're all one body. So it's your toe. So can your, your, your mouth tell your toe, oh, I'm not in pain because you're in the toe and I'm the mouth. Have a good day. Try it. It won't work. So this is all our problems. And you're thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah. All the rabbis tell me, yeah, we're all connected. Baloney. We're not all connected. We're all connected. We've always been connected. The neshama that was one when Adam was created, when the nachash, when he had in Kabbalah, we learn it's it's shattered into millions and thousands and hundreds of thousands of pieces. But it all comes from the same place. The DNA in all of us is the same. The DNA, I don't want to really go off the subject, but I'll tell you guys a story about DNA, about Jewish DNA, spiritual DNA. It's not in my notes. I wasn't going to talk about this tonight. But I think it's, it's very important. I had a student that... I taught in elementary school. I teach in elementary school that children are not religious. And this kid went to public school. And he was a very spiritual guy. And he was always looking. And I didn't see him from elementary school until his brother invited me to his wedding. 
his brother's wedding. I come to his brother's wedding, and this kid's sitting on the same table. I'm the Rebbe, and this kid's sitting on the same table. And I walk in, and I come to my table, and you know, the first dance is the rabbi dance, and everything gets mixed and crazy. You know, but the first dance is they have the mechitz up, and then that's it. You know, so it's like we do the rabbi the favor, we'll let them dance for five minutes, get out. You know, we're doing it. We're, we're going to do, uh, you know, dancing together with the girls. Okay, but anyway, I'm the Rebbe. I have to give cover to my Talmudim. So I always go for that first dance. So anyway, I sit down at the table. And uh, sitting at the table is this student, the brother. And he's got a girlfriend. And she's sitting on his lap. And a black girlfriend. She's sitting on his lap. doesn't matter what color. But she's sitting on his lap. I sit at the Rebbe's table. And as I sit down, I'm very uncomfortable. And he's smiling at me like, you know, in your face, man. <laughs> you know, hi, you didn't get to me. You know? She's smiling at me, he's smiling at me. Okay, no problem. So, uh, whatever, and you know, the cousin will okay, first dance. And of course, my insides are turning, like, hello. You know, just respect. Forget it, just respect, you know. There's a chair next to him, why don't you have to sit on his lap for? Absolute respect. You want to bring your girlfriend, she's not Jewish, you know, to the wedding. That's your, that's your thing, but, you know, not on your lap in front of your rabbi. But I, I didn't say anything. But I'm, it's, it's, it's cooking it. I'm a client. It's cooking. <laughs> well, I didn't say. I don't want to make a Hashem in front of her. Anyway, so I say, "Hey, you want to?" I say to him, not to her. Hey, you want to do the first dance? He goes, "Hey, you dance with me, Rebbe?" I said, "Yeah." He didn't call me Rebbe. Call me Rabbi. You dance with me, Rabbi? I said, "Yeah, no problem." You know what? He says, "She gets off his lap. He gets up, and we we start to dance." Pull him over. I'll never forget it like today. And I whispered in his ear. I said, "I'm not going to tell you his name because he happens to be in Israel." I said, "I'll call him Jeff." I said, "His name's not Jeff. It's Jeff. I want you to know something. Black girl on your lap. Whatever you're doing, doesn't matter. You see, because I'm your Rebbe and I'll always love you." And then I said, "Give me your other ear." I whispered in his ear, and I want you to know, I got something to tell you. You're going to hell. <laughs> <laughs> exactly what happened. The Rambam says, hug him with one hand, smack him with the other. <laughs> Before I told him he was going to hell, I had to tell him that I love him. That's the way it works. So, I don't know if the going to hell got to him or that I love got to him. I don't know which part got to him. And I saw that he was, the Neshama started to struggle. I said, listen. I said, what's up? What's going on? He says, well, you know I'm a Buddhist. I'm like, no, I haven't really been keeping up with you. Well, she, you know, she got me into Buddhism, and, and that's really my thing. I say, tomorrow night, Tuesday night, my Chabura. Why don't you come tell my Chabura about Buddhism? I don't know nothing about it. I can't make fun of it. you got to tell him about it, then I'll make fun of it. He says, you'll let me talk about Buddhism? I'm like, no problem. Leave her home. You come and, and tell me to talk. So he got up. He came, of course. He had to talk about Buddhism. He got up. And he gave his whole schmooze on Ki and Chi and We and, 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 and he went to the Himalayas and, and, and the whole the whole bit and connected to the power and the power and the, and the source and the, and the juice and all that stuff which is of course it's all he's talking about it. the juice and the power and everything where does it come from but okay I let him get through his whole thing and then I really stepped out and I said class you heard what he said? he go, yeah I said you impressed? nobody answered of course I said I'm not going to get into their whole religion I just have one question they believe that this Buddha guy is God, whatever, connected to God. Can you explain to me why a fat little guy for thousands of years couldn't lose one pound? 
<laughs> if, if he can't lose one pound, I don't believe in him. So, so of course, he turned red. He's not a Korean. Uh, he, he was clucking. It got him very angry because that's not, you know. And um, I said, I, you know, I love you anyway. And I gave the share. And he stayed for the share. It unravels. The shamas unravel. And it unraveled and it bothered him. Rebbe said he loves me. You know, he wanted to make me try to make everyone hate you so that you don't have a guilty conscience. So, like, if everyone's mean to me and no one invites me and nobody talks to me, then I make myself feel good that, you know, eh, they don't like me anyway. So he brought her really so that I wouldn't talk to him and I wouldn't say I love him so he could walk out and say, you see, it's all about the girl. It's all you judged me. So I went the other way. So he started coming to my Tuesday night year and he lost a girlfriend. And one day I said, why don't you go to Israel? Why don't you go learn in Israel? I don't have money. I said, I'll send you. Go learn. And I sent him to Esha Torah. I'll say that. <laughs> I sent him to Esha Torah. Don't worry, he didn't like it. Because, because he's a very emotional soul guy. And he, he wasn't looking for the logic of Judaism. He was looking for the emotional part of Judaism. And he ended up somewhere else. And he ended up learning for two years. He was into the chassidus, into the dancing, into the whole thing. That was his emotions, whatever it was. You figure out already where he is. And he called me up and he said, Rebbe, i got to come back to America. I said, there's a point to this story. I said, why do you have to come back to America? He says, there's no girl in Israel that's going to marry me because I have tattoos. I said, so what? He says, you don't understand, Rebbe. I have a tattoo of Buddha on my whole shoulder. I have an Avedi Zara inscribed in my body. I have two other tattoos, but who's going to ever marry me with these tattoos? In America, I already find a biker girl, you know, that we came from. But she'll also have tattoos, and uh, it'll work. I said, I don't want you to leave Eretz Yisrael. And I, you're not ready to leave Eretz Yisrael. Spend another couple of months here, whatever it is, and tell your Rosh Hashiva that, you, that if you can find your Shidduch, you should find your Shidduch, you should try to find your Shidduch. It's a true story. He calls me back, and he says, Rosh Hashiva read me a Shidduch. I'm going out with the girl. I'm very, very nervous. Should I tell her that once he became religious, he was always dressed in the hottest days until here, until here, because his tattoo goes all the way up to like his neck, and he was hiding it from everybody. And he said, do you think I should tell her on the first date that I have a tattoo of Buddha? Because when she finds out about that, she's going to scoot up. She's gone. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, not till the fifth date. You're going to start on the first date. You're never going to go on it. If she likes you and the emotions are mixed, she'll look the other way maybe, but if she's just going to be... No. You know what? You tell her on the fifth day. He went out once, he went out twice, he went out three times, he went out four times. They really, really liked each other. He called me up, I'll never forget it. He says, Rebbe, I'm going to blow it. I know she's going to walk out the door. It's over. The minute I tell her that I have a tattoo, she says, okay, I'm going to tell her it's a book. She's, a, she's a, also about true, but a very religious girl. Stark. So he goes out on the fifth day, and the date is awesome. And there he is in the car. He tells me this is how it went down. He's sitting in the car at the end of the date, and he's like, I have to tell you something. So... Usually, when a guy says that, it's, depending on the tone, I have to tell you something. It's like, I really like you. You'd make a good friend, but I don't think we're for each other. Right? That's what she thought was going was to come out of his mouth. He said, I have to tell you that I, he told her, I really like you, but there's a problem. She said, what's the problem? He said, I have tattoos. She sat there. She said, so what's the problem? He says, it's not just a tattoo. She 
says, what is it? She says, and he says, it's an Avaita Zara, it's a Buddha. Would, would, you, would you still go out with me? Would you marry me still? So she sat there, and, and this rings in my ear, and this is has given me a chizik since this story. And this is what this girl, spelled Shuva girl, told my Talmud, who was a Buddhist, who was full of tattoos, who came back to Hashem. This is what she answered. She said, it's not about the tattoo on your body that I like. It's about the tattoo on your soul. She said, your soul has the tattoo of a Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey. You have the tattoo of Hashem on your soul. If you want to marry me, I will marry you. They are married. They have two children. He's an amazing guy. He's here in Yerushalayim. He got up in front of my whole class of 400 girls and told them this story. It was amazing. And it was, we, it was called From Buddhism to Judaism. That's how we sold it. But <laughs> what hurt him, what hurt him, listen to this, and hurt me, that after he said this whole story, the girls ran up and said, can we see your tattoo? Because <laughs> they didn't understand what this girl was saying. His tattoo you can't see. His tattoo is on his nisham. And every single Jew has that on their nisham. There's nobody sitting in this room that doesn't have a Yudke Vavke on your nisham. It's sort of like when they give the nishama, it's stamped. Like 14 karat gold, it says 14K. Yeah, every nishama has Yudke Vavke. We paint it, we cover it, we hide it, we make it filthy, we, we try to, no one should see it, but it's there. Wash away everything, do you wash away, it's there. This girl saw, this boy, his body was full of Buddhas and everything, full of exam. She saw straight into his soul, and in his soul there was a Yudke Vavke. And every boy in this room, everyone has to know in this room that you have that power. You are part of that soul, that Yudke Vavke. And as it says in, in, it says in Kabbalah that when all the souls will come back to the body, that's the Lashon that it uses, the body will be complete and the Olam Haba will be here. What does that mean? All the souls will come back to the body. That means that the body is one big soul that we're talking about. The Judaism body body of, of, of our nation is one big soul. And as each guy comes back, the body fills up. So we are very responsible for the ones that are not sitting in this room. So the question is, there are so many good people out there and we're davening and we're trying and we're davening and we're praying and now Rewazi comes in and he says, it didn't work last year. Look, look at his list. I mean, I didn't finish it. 60% assimilation. 60% of Jews marry non-Jews. Six, more than half. More than one out of every two Jews marries a non-Jew. That's the percent of assimilation of Jews in the world. 60%, worse than the Nazis to tell us. 60% assimilation. Poverty, alcoholism, gambling, broken hearts, broken, so many gifts, you can't even get to a Besden. They're so busy writing divorces. Broken engagements. We're in big trouble. And it's getting worse. And therefore, what happened, Yom Kippur, last year, guys? Why couldn't we wipe out children with cancer? Why couldn't we wipe out the, the, the Iguna problem? Iguna meaning women who can't get a divorce. There's no part of, of the Jewish nation that isn't suffering. There's no part. I live in it. I live in it. From anorexic girls to bulimic girls 
to kids in depression. I've been to hospitals to the mental ward. I cannot tell you how many Jewish kids, nervous breakdown, suicide watch. This never existed. This never existed. All day long, that's what I get. Suicide calls. I'm depressed. I can't get up till 4 o'clock. I'm on drugs. The, the drug rehabs in Israel. Full. What's going on? So what's with our Yom Kippur? What happens? And how are we going to make a change? I'm going to tell you what I think happened. I'm going to tell you and I'm going to tell you what you guys can do. This Yom Kippur to change the whole thing. I know everybody here is thinking, eh, me, what am I going to do? I'm one guy. What could I do to change the whole world, to bring Mashiach? I can't do anything. That's the stuff and that's the Yetzirah. There are three kinds, of, three kinds of people in the world. There's a story where this kid was very depressed. His parents got divorced. Stuff was going really bad. He came to his Rebbe. He said, Rebbe, I don't want to live. I'm done. I've had it. I'm finished. His Rebbe said, come to my house. We're going to have a talk. Okay? He comes to his Rebbe's house. He figures his Rebbe's going to give him a muster schmooze, a whole speech. He's going to take out Svarim and books. And his Rebbe says, come into the kitchen. The kid says, the kitchen? Rabbi, I'm depressed. You know, pizza's, you know, usually guys, you give me something to eat, chill and cook. Well, I'm not depressed anymore, you know, but he said, this is not going to work with me. It's not going to work with me. Don't give me no pizza or french fries and, and, and that's not going to work with me. He says, no, no, I want to teach you something. What I'm about to tell you a story. Don't ever forget. Tell your friends and your cousins and your relatives. Everyone, tell everyone this story. This is a very important story. So the Rabbi said, let's put up three pots of water to boil. Put up three pots of water to boil. The water's boiling. Tells the kid, okay, give me, take a raw potato, put it in the first pot. He says, Rebbe, something wrong with you? Like, uh, I didn't come here for, for cooking lessons. I came here, I'm, I'm, I'm in trouble. He says, no. Put the potato in the first pot. Puts it in the first pot. He says, okay, open the refrigerator. Take out a raw egg. Raw egg. Okay, what do I do with the raw eggs? Put it in the second pot, boiling water. Okay, Rebbe. What do you want from my life? I'm more depressed than I was when I got here. <laughs> Potatoes and eggs we're having for lunch. That's not what I came here for. He says, okay, go to the third pot and throw a bunch of coffee grinds in it. Okay, he throws in coffee grinds. Rebbe says, okay, now let's sit down and watch. Rebbe, are you sure you didn't have a nervous breakdown? We should, we're going to sit here now and watch a potato boil and an egg boil and coffee boil? He says, yeah, we're going to watch. A half an hour, we're going to sit here. I'm just going to watch. He's like, there better be a good ending to this. You're thinking the same. So, so they're sitting there. They're sitting there watching this stuff boil. And finally, it's a half an hour later. Rebbe says, okay, turn off all the fires. Turn off all the fires. He says, okay, take out the potato. Takes out the potato. He says, put it on a plate. Put it on a plate. Just take out a, a fork and mash it. Takes the fork, just touches the potatoes, boiling it for half, for half an hour, boiling, boiling. It turns into mush. You can't even mash it. It's already mush. He says, okay, take the plate with the mush potato, mashed potato, put it on the side. So okay, take out the egg. Takes out the egg of the pot. He's like, oh, really crazy. He says, peel it. He says, okay, okay, Rebbe, now we have eggs and potatoes. Very nice. He says, no, put it, put it, on, the, put it on, the, on the table in a plate. He says, okay. He says, what's that? He goes, it's a humble egg. Good. Okay, IQ test. He says, all right, what do you got in the next pot? He says, coffee. Ah, smells good. He says, okay, put it in a huge cup. Puts it in a huge cup, puts it on the table. He says, okay, Chaim, what do we have on the table? Mashed potatoes, hobbled egg, and a, and a cup of coffee. Okay, Rebbe, now what? He says, there are three kinds of people. Let me show you who they are. He says, you see the mashed potato? He says, there are people that are very strong, tough guys. They're tough guys when stuff's going good. When, when the water begins to boil and there's problems in life and it's not so easy and it boils for a little while they turn into mush they get depressed I can't do this anymore I can't live anymore I, I want to sleep I can't deal with life hello you would have been man you're walking around telling other guys hey 
hey, let's go learn. Let's go play ball. You were the man. Oh, all of a sudden you have problems. What happened? So some people put them in hot water. They're potatoes. They become mush. So then there are other kinds of people. The other kind of person, he's very soft. He's the sweetest guy. Come to my house. You need charity? You need a loan? Sweetest guy. Sweetest guy in Shiva. What a sweetheart. But then all of a sudden, he loses his money and life starts going bad. And you're like, hey man, can I borrow a dollar? Get out of here. What do you think I'm a bank? All of a sudden, this sweet guy put him in a little hot water and it becomes from a soft-boiled egg to a hard-boiled egg. And I've seen it happen many times. Where really nice guys, when they start having problems, you can't talk to them. What, I'm running a business, not a charity fund. The same guy, two years before, and he was doing well. Send me poor people. Totally changed around. So, so some people, they, be, they were soft, they be, they're nice and sweet, they become hard. He said, Chaim, I don't want you to be either one of those. I want you to be the coffee pot. And I says, what are you talking about? Listen to this. He says, the first two guys, the potato and the egg, allowed the hot water to change them. But in the third pot, the coffee beans changed the water. He says, Chaim, don't allow the problems to change you. You change the problems. The coffee grinds change the water. In the first two pots, the water changed. The potato changed the egg. But the third pot, the coffee grinds said, no, 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 you're not changing me. I'm changing you. You were water, now you're coffee. He said, Chaim, go into the world and change the problems of the world. Don't let the problems of the world change you. So we're going to go into this some kipper and we're going to change the world. We're going to wipe off Robert Wallenstein's list next year. It's going to look like this side of the page. There's going to be nothing on it. There's going to be no camp simcha, and no camp hask, and no divorces, and no broken marriages, and no all the stuff that we're going through. It's going to be gone. How we do that? We bring Mashiach. Mashiach comes. It's all over. All the stuff's out the door. How do we bring Mashiach? Come on. They've been trying for how many years to bring Mashiach? Nobody can bring Mashiach. A bunch of guys, Rabbi Alton, Rosh We're going to bring Mashiach. Absolutely. Because we're the coffee beans. We're going to change the hot water. We're going to change what's going on in this world. We're not going to let what's going on in this world change us. And I'm going to tell you how we're going to do this. So, the main tool that we use on Yom Kippur is what? Is our mouth. We daven. We pray. There's a hospital in Boston that's known for children, pediatric surgery of the heart. Their specialty is replacement of faulty valves in a child's heart. It's a very famous hospital. And there's a doctor in this hospital that is like the man. He has golden hands. Everybody wants, they need surgery for a kid, it should be by him. He's the man, he does one surgery a day, that's it. There's a team of 22 people working with him. The hospital is amazing. Everybody wants to get in there who never has to do it for their, for their children. These people that I'm talking about finally got an appointment to have their child meet him. They met him, made an appointment for surgery. They came to bring him this child for surgery. They were very excited that the doctor said, listen to me. Before I go into surgery, I want you to know that there are children that I did surgery on and I always give them a blessing that they should come back to Boston to run the Boston Marathon. And I have patients that I have done surgery on that had faulty heart valves that are running the Boston Marathon. You have nothing to worry about. And he started the surgery 
and nine and a half hours he operated on this child. It was amazing. It was brilliant. And he even looked at the end when they were throwing the kid up. He made sure there was no leakage. Everything was working. Everything was perfect. And he walked out the door after the surgery and you know, he has those 22 people working, the anesthesiologist, the assistant, and all the different doctors, everyone that's working in the room. And he walked out and he said to the parents, today was an unbelievable day. Your son will be in that marathon in years from now. He is going to be perfectly healthy. What an operation. And the parents are kissing him and hugging him. You're the best doctor. You're the greatest guy. You're, you're unbelievable. And that's it. He hangs up his coat and he goes home. And they take this kid up to his room. And an hour after the operation, he begins to run a fever. 101, 102, 103, 104, 105. They're giving him antibiotics. They're giving him Tylenol. They're giving him aspirin. They're giving him everything. The fever just rages. He goes into a coma. And within six hours of the surgery, he passes away. The child passes away. They call up the doctor. This never happened. At this hospital? Never. They call up the doctor. The patient that you did surgery on today, that... He just passed away. He says, are you crazy? You, you, you mixed it up. That can't be my patient. I never, ever lost. Never lost a patient in my life. I'm coming out to the hospital. He comes out to the hospital. And he sees that the child passed away. And it was his patient. He goes running to the president of the hospital's room. And he says, I want you to know, this is the last day that I'm working here. I quit. And the president says, what do you mean you quit? We built a hospital around you. We built a surgical team around you. We, an operating room for you. What do you mean you quit? You can't just walk in here and quit. So when I graduated medical school, I made a promise that the first patient I lose is the last patient I lose. If somebody dies under my care, I will never practice medicine again. I'm going to play golf for the rest of my life. Have a good life. And the president's running with him down the hall. He said, are you crazy? you you gotta, you got to stick with us. We, we need you. And all of a sudden, the president has a brilliant idea. He says, hold it. Who said it was you? Who said it was you? You have 22 people that work with you. Maybe it was an anesthesiologist. Maybe it was after you left the room. Who said it was you? Maybe you didn't. Maybe he didn't die because of you. Check out your staff. He says, you know what? You're right. He's right. He calls the staff together, all 22 of them. He says, listen, you know that we lost this kid today. I want to see all of your records. You know my rule. Everyone has to have eight hours of sleep before they go into surgery. I want to see all your, all your logs. Checks out each one of their logs. He sees that each one of them slept eight to ten hours. He says, not, okay, I want urine tests. I want blood tests. I want to see if you are on alcohol or on drugs. Everything comes back clean. Everything is perfect. Everyone's in perfect order. He goes back to the president. He says, you know what? I did the check. It was me. I checked everyone out. They were perfect. It was me. I'm out of here. Goes to his room. Starts collecting off his desk, his pictures, his folders. There's a knock on the door. Says, don't even bother me. He figured it's one of his surgical team, you know, because they're losing their jobs too now. You know, begging him to say, I'm not staying. I'm packing. Get away from the door. You don't understand? I'm, it's not going to make it this what you have to say. Get away from my door. Get away from my door. And all of a sudden there's a voice. But doctor, it's Anna. He goes, Anna Banana. I don't know who she is. Never heard of no Anna. Get away from my door. She says, no, but it's Anna. It's Anna. He says, I don't care who you are. Get away from my door. But, but, but I killed him. He said, what? He goes running to the door. He opens it up. And standing in front of the door is a 22-year-old girl. He says, you killed my patient? I don't even know you. I never saw you in this hospital. What do you mean you killed my patient? She says, well, 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 I have to tell you, doctor, you know, I've been watching you for years. You've been watching me? I never saw you. What do you mean you've been watching me? She says, well, I, I have this job. It's, it's, it doesn't pay a lot. It's, it's minimum wage. 
next to you know next to your surgical room in the operating room. I'm the one that takes the instruments after every operation, and I I put them in the hot box. Sterilize. He goes, okay. She says, well, I have to tell you the truth, doctor. That you know, that day today when you when you did the surgery, and, and um, I was about to put it in the hot box, and my phone rang. It was my boyfriend, and I was talking to him. And then I guess I got lost talking to him, and all of a sudden I heard you screaming, "Where are my instruments?" And I got all panicky. I'm going to lose my job. It's my only job. So, so I ran back in, and, and I wasn't sure if I put it in the hot box or not, but I really knew I didn't. But it was the last second. I didn't know what to do, and I panicked. So I just took it and I wrapped it in the gauze that you always have, and I gave it to you. And, and those instruments, those tools that you used, in, in that in that heart, were full of bacteria and pus from the other operation, and you actually put bacteria into his valves. And that's why they couldn't stop the infection. I'm really sorry. I panicked. I, I'm really sorry. And that's the story. So why am I telling you the story? It's like, Dr. Watson came here to like beat us over the head and tell us some bad stories. <laughs> so I'll tell you why I'm telling you the story. The instrument, we're all doing surgery. In about 22 hours, 21 hours, comes Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is a day of surgery. We go inside and we cut. Averis, bad thoughts, bad things we said. The spiritual cancer, we cut. Cut piece by piece. It's tshuva. We're cutting. We're doing an operation. Hashem's giving us 25 hours in Kippur to do this operation. 25 hours to work and to cut and to work and to sew and to mend and to come to Ne'ilah and to finish and say, Hashem, walk out the door! Surgery's over! Success! We all walked out the door last year. I did after Ne'ilah Baruch Hashem success but the list wrong 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 the list wasn't success fever children dying parents dying Shalabai is dying everything dying kids going off the deck kids on drugs what do you mean success 101 102 106 coma what kind of success is that and we walk around and we say, I don't understand. I was the best doctor last year. I mamish had a Yom Kippur. I was fine. I didn't talk to anybody. I was davening. I was on fire. I'm the man. I was the surgeon. I did so well. And what a team. I was in Or Sameach. A team of rabbis. Right? Not 22, 122. What a team. And what a hospital. In Yushalayim and Yeshiva. Best hospital, best team, best surgeon. So how did this list happen? And the answer is that the surgery you all do, the tool and the instrument that we all use is our mouth. And if the mouth is dirty, if the mouth has bacteria, then the patient will die. Because it will infect the heart of the Jewish nation. Because we're operating on the heart of the Jewish nation. So if the surgeon which is all of us, and including in our soul. We're doing the surgery in our soul, and that's part of the Jewish soul, and our mouth is infected, and that's the tool we're using, our tulus die. The Kabayashi says, your tulus dies. It doesn't go anywhere. It comes out and goes straight down. Because it's sick. Because it's full of bacteria. Because it's a mouth that spoke Lashon Hara. It's a mouth that spoke bad about rabbis. It's a mouth that spoke back to its parents. It's a mouth that said bad things about other guys. It's a mouth that says curses. <laughs> Hashem wants a tiller from it's full of bacteria. So we try, we try, it doesn't work. 
And what's the other tool that we use on, on, on Yom Kippur? Besides our mouth, does anyone know? What other tool do you use to do tshuva? No? 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 Two things. Your heart. The Rambam says, tshuva without the heart. Hashem despises. A peh, that's not echad belev, a mouth that's not together with your heart. Hashem doesn't want any part of it. Guy who gets up and says, I'm sorry, but he's not. Guy who says, I love you, Hashem, but he doesn't. Hashem knows what's in your heart. The two tools is your heart and your mouth. So if your heart is full of love for the wrong things, girls and schmutz and, I'm sorry, and filth and stuff that you're not supposed to see and you're not supposed to, and that's what you put into your heart, and then you want to do surgery with that heart on your kipper? So, so what are you doing? You're bringing movies to Shemayim? Girls to Shemayim? All your emotions and feelings for the wrong things to Shemayim? I love this kind of music. Okay, let's bring 50 cents to Shemayim on Yom Kippur. Because that's what you love. So what are you bringing to the table? So therefore, for one day a year, one day a year, that's all, 25 hours, while you're doing the surgery, we need the heart clean and we need the mouth clean. How do we do that? Rabbi Watson, you came in at Doomsday. You know, we all didn't do Judah. He brought us a list. He's a crazy guy. He wants to depress us. No, I don't come in and just tell you what's wrong. I come in and tell you how to fix it. So, the same speech. I wasn't scared to give it to you guys because I gave it Tuesday night to 2,350 women. And if they can handle it, you can handle it. So I said, I was thinking, okay, Chris Barkley, I, I hear the problem. What do we do? How do we fix it? How does one sterilize his heart and his mouth? Well, when I was a kid, I said a dirty word. My mother stuck soap into my mouth. Well, I don't think that's going to work. You know, right, Wilson started a new thing. Everyone's running five minutes before Yom Kippur and they're washing their mouth out with soap or Listerine. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. So how does one clean his mouth? And I thought to myself, I'm going to ask my Rebbe if I could do this. There's a thing called a Tanis Dibur. Tanis Dibur means that not only are you fasting Yom Kippur, but you take upon yourself not to talk from Kol Nidre until the shofar blows after Ne'ilah. It's called a Tanis Dibur. It is huge. Huge. Bigger than not eating. Huge. So I figured if I could go in front of 2,350 women and say... I'm asking you to do a Tanis Dibur this Yom Kippur. I'm going to bring Mashiach. And my Rebbe said, absolutely not. So I said, oh, you mean that absolutely they can't do it? Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm not allowed to ask them. He said, you're not allowed to ask them. I said, why not? We have, we have to sterilize. That would sterilize your mouth. Tanis Dibur. He said, because you're going to cause more anti-Semitism and more shalom bias problems. What's going to happen? A woman's going to come home husband will say, listen, can you do this? Can you do this? And you go, uh, 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 uh. And the husband will say, oh, oh yeah, your friends, you talk Russian horror. Now I need to talk to you. Uh, 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 you can't talk. Whoa, you're a big rabbit shit. <laughs> My mother didn't need it. She was religious. Her grandmother never always spoke on Yom Kippur. We can say the Torah, you're not allowed to speak. Oh, the rabbis are making you crazy. He said, you're going to have more people going off the derrick than coming on the derrick. He says, kids are going to come home, their mother's going to say, Chanel, can you help me? <laughs> right? Can you tell the kids to get dressed? <laughs> They're going to think you're running a cult. Are you kidding me? You're going to lose more kids than you ever, than you ever brought to Hashem. No, I don't allow it. He says, I don't allow it. You're not allowed to ask for a time to I said, okay, my Rebbe doesn't allow it. He doesn't allow it. But if you want to do it, you can do it anyway. Okay, anyway. <laughs> you got to do what you got to do. So I said to Rebbe, what should we do? 
He said, tell everybody that this Yom Kippur, every moment that you're in shul, you're not allowed to talk. Not that everyone understands. But when you're in shul, you want to talk to your friend, tell outside. In shul, nobody should talk to Yom Kippur. He said, you want to bring Mashiach? Nobody should talk in shul to Yom Kippur. It's going to work. It's good enough. I said, okay. I got up. I said, ladies, I'm not asking you for a time as Dibra, but you can do what you want. And of course, after I spoke, 150 of them came over and said, how do you do a Tanis Dibra? I said, no, 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 no. How do you do a Tanis Dibra? What happens if you speak in the middle? Whatever. Everyone has to do what they have to do. But then I had another thought. My other thought was, okay, so that's the negative part of the sterilizing. Saying, this is Kippur Hashem in the, in the schus of me not speaking. I should have good surgery. Good utensils. Good instruments. But I want that's the loisa say not to. What about that say? What should we do? So I thought to myself, tomorrow there's a mitzvah to eat. You will all find that tomorrow you all have no appetite whatsoever, because it's a mitzvah to eat. My rebbe used to give me a candy, used to suck on a candy all day, and that was a mitzvah every second. That's what we used to do. So tomorrow you're not going to be hungry. So I said to myself, what's the mitzvah say with dibor and with your heart? How can you do a mitzvah say tomorrow? And what we should do tomorrow is not say anything bad out of our mouth. Anything bitter, only happy things. Hi, Ma, I love you. Hi, Dad, I love you. Hey, hey Chaim, haven't spoken to you in a while. Uh, you might me? Only positive things. Thank you, graciousness, only positive things. A whole Erev Yom Kippur, only positive talking, positive talking. So that when you come into Yom Kippur and you start to daven, your mouth is clean, it's positive, your heart is positive. And that will give us the strength. In, in one of the Avinu Malkenos, and we say, it says, Stone Pios, Mastineno Mikatrigeno Hashem, close the mouth of the prosecutor, our enemy. How does Hashem close the mouth? The prosecutor comes up, right? He hits a hurry, he says, Hashem, you created me, I'm the prosecutor. This guy did this, this guy did that, and we're saying, Hashem, shut him up. How's Hashem going to shut him up? Hashem created him to talk. How are you going to shut him up? You say, okay, quiet. Don't say anything about the Jews. What do you mean? That's what you created me for. That's my job. So how does one shut him up? So the, the angel of defense will tell Sakash Baruch Hu, my, the person that I stand for, took on not to speak on Yom Kippur. Therefore, the Satan can't speak on Yom Kippur. Let him talk after Yom Kippur when it's all over. But on Yom Kippur, my guy took on not to speak. Therefore, he cannot speak. So the Mida Kenege Mida, that's That's how we close the mouth of the Satan on Yom Kippur. But be very careful. I'm not telling you to take on a Tanish Dibur. But be very careful on Yom Kippur not to speak out. Only things that are of absolute necessity. That way you're cleaning your tools. That way you can do surgery. We can cut away all these terrible things. We can totally change that paper. Now, I know that there are a lot of guys in here that after everything I'm saying still don't believe. You know, you guys, a lot of you guys are ball players. I'm a ball player. No matter how much the coach coaches you if you don't get on the court it's worthless you have the greatest coach and teach you how to dribble and teach you how to dribble, right? and the game is tied and he says okay Wallace you get on the court take the ball I want you to take the last shot no I'm just going to sit on the bench so I had the greatest coach I'm not a player I'm sitting on the bench nothing's going to happen so I can come in and tell you, do this, do that, do this, feel that, do you. But I'm sure you heard Shmooz in the last two weeks. Change this, change that. You know, Red Wallace is talking about your mouth, and this one talked about, don't talk to girls, and this one talked about, Kavon. Everybody has all, eh, all these different stories. You're getting coached from every side, but if you don't play, comes your Kippur, and you say, I'm going to sleep. I'm not doing this. So what does the coaching do? 
It's an amazing story. I'm going to end with this story. One of my most favorite stories. Amazing, amazing story that was told by, by a law professor. One of my students today is a lawyer. He's also a Rebbe. He's a Rebbe and a lawyer. Half a day, half a day. And he went to law school. He told me, you know, he just told, he told me all what was going on in law school. So he told me all this story. And he didn't realize I was going to use this story for, for, for speaking in, in Judaism. There's a class in law school that was called Coaching Your Clients. A lawyer has to coach his clients. It's a very important part of working with a client. So listen to this unbelievable story. And anyone, anyone in this room who becomes a lawyer, who is a lawyer, I have to say that you're never allowed to use what I'm about to tell you. You're never allowed to use it in a court of law. Otherwise, I'm not allowed to tell it to you. So we have an agreement. Good. You all shook your head. You're not going to use it in a court of law. So there was this guy who was accused. He was a very big politician. A very, very rich man. And he was accused of murdering a young girl. And he went out and he said, I can't. I'm a politician. i got to win this case. So he got like O.J. Simpson's lawyer. The most expensive, the best lawyer in the world. The guy took $5 million up front for the case that he took. But this guy had the money and he, it was worth it. He wanted to make sure he would get off innocent. So he hired him. And this was a big thing because the guy that was accused was a very big politician and a very powerful man. And the press was there. And everybody was betting. It was an assistant DA. An assistant DA, some young schnook out of law school, going up against a $5 million seasoned, victorious lawyer. Like, this. no chance. Dead. And this little young DNA get, uh, DA gets up and he starts, you know, gets in front of the, the jury and he says, listen, I'm going to prove that that man sitting there, the accused, is the murderer for that 17-year-old girl. Yeah, yeah, okay. He gets up and the guy is a wizard, this, this young kid. He's a wizard. And he gets up there and he starts bringing this witness and that witness and this witness. And now comes to cross-examination. And the big $5 million lawyer gets out of his chair. And the politician says, I got the man, you know. Gets out of his chair and he says to the witness, So you say you were outside the door and you heard the young girl screaming. Yes, sir. What time? Three o'clock, sir. How do you know it's three o'clock? I looked at my watch, sir. What kind of watch were you wearing? A Timex. And when was the last time you had that Timex checked to see that it was running exactly on time? I never had the Timex checked to see if it was running on time. Note that she never had her Timex checked. Press is like $5 million lawyer. He's cross-examining a watch. What's going on over here? The guy's making crazy. He's making a whole joke out of the whole case. And the, and the politician's sitting there. He's spent $5 million on this guy? Was he crazy? That's a course examination. Where'd you get the watch? How'd you check the watch? So it was 301. What's the difference? She heard screaming. Anyway, I'm not going to hold you here a whole night. This assistant DA, he is ripping. This witness, that witness. And this guy is getting up there. This $5 million lawyer. And he's just asking... Lamppost? Did it have, was it six feet tall? Was it 12 feet tall? He's making a joke out of the whole thing. And this guy's sweating. This, he doesn't know what's going on. And the press is like, I think the guy had a stroke. You know, the lawyer, he's, he's crazy. He's not asking the right questions. Okay. The judge also, they don't understand what's going on. Okay. Finally, case is over now. Everyone presented their case. And the judge says, okay, to assistant DA, I'd like you to get up and speak to the, um, speak to the jury, present your summation. Do summation. He gets up, and he turns to the, now he feels good about himself because he really ripped this $5 million lawyer to pieces. He gets up and says, men and women of the jury, 
do you know what this man did? He killed a 17-year-old girl. She will never go to her prom. She will never get married. She will never have children. He didn't take away one life. He took away her children, her grandchildren, her great-grandchildren. He's a murderer. And you must find him guilty of murder on the first degree, punishable by execution, by death, on the electric chair. And everyone's sitting there. Wow, he's good. And the jury's sitting there, six men and six women, they're thinking to themselves, this guy is fried. He is so guilty. He is so guilty. I mean, all the evidence is in. He is guilty. And it's just a question. And the judge turns to the $5 million lawyer and he says, summation. And everyone's like, okay, now what is he going to do? He gets up and he says to the jury and to the judge, he says, you know, you're all wondering why I made uh, such a joke out of this whole case. Timex. How high was the lamppost? And the guy's sitting there and he's going, yeah. <laughs> you're defending me. I'm also wondering what you were doing. <laughs> and he says, I'll tell you why. He says, this whole case is a big joke. You see, the girl that was supposedly murdered, she called me the day before this case began and told me she wasn't murdered, but she ran away to Mexico because her parents were giving her a hard time. She's just a runaway child. There's no murder here. And exactly, it's now 2 o'clock, and exactly 3 o'clock, she got off a plane, she's on her way here, and exactly 3 o'clock, she's going to walk in through that door. So why would I waste my time trying to make a case, break a case, this whole thing. There's no victim. There's no victim. There's no murder. There's no murder. What are we doing here? So let us just wait till 3 o'clock and everyone will understand that this whole thing is a bluff. And the assistant DA sits down and everybody's sitting there. Okay? Comes 3 o'clock. This guy that's sitting there, the accused, he's like, what is this guy doing? Crazy. Right? Comes 3 o'clock. The jury's sitting there and they're all going inside themselves, you know, I was ready to kill an innocent man. I can't believe it. I thought there was a murder. And they're like really like full of themselves, like, you know. And at 3 o'clock, they're looking at the door. Nobody. 3.15, they're looking at the door. Nobody. 3.30, nobody. 3.45, nobody. Finally, the judge says, listen, mister, I don't know what kind of game you're playing. Summation now or contempt of court? And the lawyer says, no problem, I'll do summation. And he turns to the jury he says to the jury, you know American law? He said, yes. They told us all the laws that we had to know before we sat down the jury. He says, do you know that American law is that someone has to be proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt to be guilty? They said, absolutely. He said, well, is it true or not true, ladies and men of the jury, that from 3 o'clock to 4 o'clock, you were looking at that door waiting for her to walk in? And you too, judge, weren't you? And you too, assistant DA, weren't you? And everyone in the courtroom was looking at that door from 3 o'clock to 4 o'clock. If you were so sure beyond a reasonable doubt that he was murdered, why were you looking at the door? You looked at the door, it means you had reasonable doubt. Therefore, I find that you should find that my client is not guilty because you looked at that door for one hour. And I say that looking at a door for an hour waiting for someone to come through it is more than reasonable doubt. Brilliant. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. The judge sitting there, he fooled us. The jury sitting there, that's the law. Beyond reasonable doubt. The press is there, beyond reasonable doubt. And they were all looking at the door. It means they had a chance in their head that she might walk in. So the judge turns to the jury and says, this is a true story, by the way. This is a tort law school. The judge turns to the jury and says, 
you got to go in the room. That's the law. And you got to come back out. And you know, you got to come back with a non-guilty verdict because this is on. This is on the news. Everybody knows that there was a reasonable doubt. This is American law on the news. We can't play with this. And the jury says, "You're right. You were fooled." And they go into the room. And two minutes later, they come back out. The jury person gets up, says, "We find so and so guilty of murder, first degree, punishable by the electric chair." And the judge says, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. There's reasonable doubt. You know the whole thing. And the jury person gets up and says, this young lady is the one that pushed us to find him guilty. Maybe she should tell you what happened. Okay. She gets up. And she says, judge, you see, everyone on the jury and everyone in the courtroom, you were all watching the door. I wasn't watching the door. I was watching the accused. The accused, for the whole hour between three and four, never turned around once to look at the door. Which means that he knew she wasn't walking through that door. And the only person in the world that knows that she's not walking through the door is the one who killed him. Therefore, I knew that he was the murderer. And that's why we found him guilty. And the place explodes. And the, ju- the lawyer walks over to the accused and he says, You idiot. All you needed to do was turn around and look at the door for one second. And you would be a free man. Now you're going to the electric chair. So the professor in class tells my student, you got to coach your client. And tell him, look at the door when he's supposed to look at the door. We're going Yom Kippur. We're standing in front of Hashem. We're telling Hashem we're sorry. Telling Hashem we're not going to do this anymore. Telling Hashem we want Mashiach. Telling Hashem Klai Yisrael is suffering. It's a great story. You're a good lawyer. Good speech. Hoyum Kippur. Good speech. But if you don't believe it, then the jury is going to find you guilty. Because you didn't turn around and look at the door. When you stand on Yom Kippur, you have to believe that there is a Mashiach. You have to believe that there is a Hashem. You have to believe that Hashem accepts our tshuva at any time, no matter what we did. If you believe it, and you and you show that you believe it, you give it that one second, I really believe it, then you'll walk out of the door. <laughs> then when we look at the door of this Yom Kippur, guys, at Ne'ilah, and we say, Hashem Elohim, and we say, L'shana haba and we look at that door, who's going to walk through that door? Mashiach. But if you talk, I, I believe Mashiach, we want Mashiach now. And you can sing all the songs you want and say all the animams you want. But if you don't believe it and you don't look at the door and you're not preparing yourself, how does one look at the door? I'm preparing myself. Yeah, I believe there's a party and I believe that they're having a party in this room and you stay there with your shorts. And it's a black tie affair. It means you don't believe it. You don't believe there's going to be a party. Maybe if that, that, we'll see what happens. But if you believe that there's going to be a party, then you would have changed. So on Yom Kippur, to repeat what I said, Everyone in this room has the power to change the water. Don't let the water change you. Everybody needs to clean up the tool, the instrument that you are going to use. Tomorrow, positive, positive. Talk good, talk nice, talk loving. Yom Kippur, talk as least as you can humanly possibly talk. And for sure, we end off the last... And it's a very special Yom Kippur. You should know that's a big thing about it. I don't want to tell you Mashiach's coming, because if he doesn't come, he'll get upset at me. And, you know, growing up, I'm 50 years old. I probably heard 10 times 
this year, the Gamatria, the Scud, the Scud, uh, backwards, spelled Scud, spelled Iran. Uh, it's not funny. It's, it's, you know, there's certain years, Tavshin, Mem, Ches was Tia Shnas Moshiach. Oh, it was a lot of stuff. So what happened? So the Torah says, not that, that, not that it wasn't true, but that there are certain times that are set for Moshiach to come, and if we're not, we're not up to the guys at the door and you don't open it. You know? I was at your door for, for a, whole, a whole Yom Kippur and you didn't open it for me. So I turned around and I walked away. So it's brought down this year as a Shemitah year. The Gemara says, Mashiach is going to come in a Shemitah year. Shemitah year. Yom Kippur came, comes out on Shabbos. Yom Kippur on Shabbos is a huge bracha because on Shabbos there's no din. Rosh Hashanah on Shabbos is a big klala. Rosh Hashanah on Shabbos is the first day not having shofar. The Gemara says, Watch out, it's going to be a bad year if you don't have shofar on the first day of Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah, this Rosh Hashanah wasn't on Shabbos. We had two days of shofar. Yom Kippur on Shabbos is, there's no din. It's a very special, and it says that if we keep two Shabbosim, Mashiach will come. This, this Shabbos is two Shabbosim. Yom Kippur is considered a Shabbos, and Shabbos is a Shabbos. We keep, this Yom Kippur, we kept two Shabbosim. So even if you can't bring, listen carefully to what I'm telling you. That's for everybody in this room. Even if you can't bring Mashiach for Klai Yisrael the Shabbos, but if you keep this Yom Kippur, all the halachas of Yom Kippur, and you keep two Shabbosim in a row, because that's two Shabbosim at one time, you bring your own Mashiach. Because every person has to bring his own Mashiach before the big one comes. So everyone that needs a Mashiach, and what is a Mashiach? Mashiach means to help. Everyone that needs help from God, whether it's sickness or whatever you need, whatever you need help from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, this is the this is the Yom Kippur to do it. This is two Shabbosim in one shot. You have the ability to do two Shabbosim on one shot. At the same time, keep your tool clean. You can blow the heavens open. You can change the hot water that Christ rolls in into a beautiful, beautiful coffee, so to say, but not a coffee. To a beautiful year. To a year of Mashiach. I want to end. I'm going to end just with something which I, I made up my mind. I'm just going to say over every speech from when I heard this three months ago. Every speech I tell this story. It's two seconds. I talk a lot about butterflies. Not that I'm weird. Okay, but when I was when I was in eighth grade, thank God I didn't come my butterfly time. I wouldn't hear the end of it. When I was in eighth grade, I lived in Muncie, and I was next to a field, and there were always butterflies and caterpillars, and it always bothered me why Hashem created caterpillars and they have to suffer and become go through cocoon and metamorphosis, that whole thing, and become a butterfly. What Hashem ran out of time? You make butterflies. You make, everything else you made that way. You make cows. You make goats. You make a butterfly and make a caterpillar. Why does the caterpillar have to become a butterfly? You, you, Ran out of time, ran out of moles, ran out of money, guy. We're like, what happened? Right? What happened? So there's very deep things in the butterfly. I'm, a, I'm an out of the box guy. I haven't figured that out yet. And, and from a kid, I was like, this was a, this was something that bothered me. Why did Hashem do this? And I asked my revenue, he said, don't ask questions, which didn't help me much. But <laughs> so I studied it, and I understand very much. First of all, it's brought down. Anyone who wants to go Google butterfly, you'll see that it goes from a metamorphosis. It goes into a, a, what's called a chrysalis. And the chrysalis, is, is, it becomes a powder. And from that powder comes a butterfly. And they don't understand how that works. And that's a riot at Tchiyas HaMason. it says our bones are going to get meat and, and it'll become, we're going to become back. The riot at Mason is a metamorphosis of a butterfly. It's, a, it's also living in this world and suffering. And then when you come out of the cocoon, which is this world, you get your wings, which is the nefesh. When you die, you can see from one end of the world to the other, it says. You get your wings, you become a different being. So the whole metamorphosis, the whole butterfly caterpillar is very deep Kabbalistic. It's not, it's not, Hashem didn't just run out of time and make a caterpillar and a butterfly. There's a reason. And it teaches us all that sometimes to change who you are for better, you have to go through cocoon. It's a very sad place. 
And as a kid, I was always thinking, this poor, this poor caterpillar, you know, he's talking to all the other caterpillars, and they're like, like, hang out with us, man, at the bottom of the tree, let's eat leaves, you know, let's take it easy, you know. And like some old caterpillar shows up and says, there's another world out there, baby. You know, <laughs> climb up the tree, get into the leaf, there's a little, little room over there, the dark room, get in there, close the door. And everything things are going to happen. Psychedelic trip. You're going to fly. You're going to come out. And oh my God, you're going to have wings. They're like, well, the, oh, yeah, right. You know, silly old rabbi caterpillar with these stories. Olam Haba, got Adan. But you know, there's that one caterpillar that says, I got to try it. Zap. And he climbs up. They're all screaming at him. You're an idiot. You're a loser. You know, climbs up the tree, goes and sees that room. It's very scary. Only one butterfly per room. Metamorphosis in a cocoon is only one. Only one. 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 You can't have two. They don't make it if there's two. Only one. So this poor thing, he's sitting there as a caterpillar. He's got 22 little legs, right? Used to crawling at a mile in 70 years, right? With all his buddies. And they all think they're the coolest thing. Like, hey, check me out. I got 22 legs, right? And a fuzzy hair. I got a nice hair. My hair's back. You ever see caterpillar? He's got his hair back, you know? Everyone's very cool. And like, he's like, and they're all telling him, yeah, you're a loser. You believe all these stories. Come on. Believe in all the harbor. Look on a tree. You got to change. Get out of here. So, you know, this guy's brave enough. He goes in there. He gets into the cocoon, and then the, the door closes, and it's miserable. I'm, I'm, my head's there. You know, I'm in the cocoon with this poor thing. And, and if, you read, if you read about him, their body splits open. It oozes open. Their stomachs split open. They, their legs split open. From the inside is where the, is where the butterfly comes out. He just, it's just, it's just a bad trip, 30 days, in a, in, a, in a black cocoon, sweating in the hot by yourself. No one to talk to. Right? But it's worth it. Because the rabbi caterpillar said that when I come out of here, Kanadan. I'm going to be different, right? And so he finally comes out of the cocoon. Interesting, if you help the butterfly out of the cocoon, he dies. You have to let him push out of the cocoon because the juices get pulled into his wings. Amazing. I had one in my office from a cocoon because, wow, a cocoon's this big. butterfly that comes out of it is, is this big. It's, it's amazing. It's something to watch. It, it, mamish, it shows you how Kodesh Baruch But anyway, and you're not allowed to help it. If it's squeezing out, if you open it, it dies because it, it pushes its juices into its wings, which is also sometimes... You're not supposed to help someone. You have to let them push themselves a little bit. Don't push them too fast. Let them, put, let them get themselves out on time. There's a lot of lessons to be learned. Okay, anyway. So I'm just picturing this poor butterfly sitting on the top leaf. He came out of the cocoon. There he is. He's got all his friends on the bottom, you know, partying, all the caterpillars. And here he is, 20 feet up, and he looks down, terror. <coughs> Instead of 22 legs, there's two little sticks. That's it. That's all the butterfly has, two little sticks. He's like, oh my God, they were right. That rabbi threw me a trip here. I went up here with 22 legs, and I came out, because he can't see what he is in the dark in the cocoon. He looks at himself, he's yeah, a skinny little thing with two little twiggy legs. Oh my God, they're going to make so much fun of me. Look what I look like. And here he is, how am I going to get down? I can't climb down this tree with two legs. Panic. What about you? It starts to change. Panic. It looked good, it looked great. I'm suffering, it's hard. My friends are making fun of me. I'm not what I used to be. What's going on over here? So you need a Rebbe. You need someone to come by who has wings and say, hey, you don't travel on legs anymore. You can fly. And the butterfly says, fly? What's that? How am I going to fly? He says, in your back, on your back. You got these wings. What are you talking about? Your back. There are wings. Watch me. There's a Torah. There's Chumash. It's filling the sixes, the Rebbe tells him. Put on filling today. You got wings. What are you talking about? Put them on. You'll see. I wear them. Look at me. And the butterfly, I think the most craziest moment is when he jumps off that leaf. Because when he jumps off that leaf, either two things are going to happen. Either he's going to fly and feel the most amazing feeling in his life, or he's going to crash in the middle of all his friends, and he's going to look very weird. 
and they're all going to make a lot of fun of him for the rest of his life. They're going to call him Twiggy because he has two little legs. <laughs> so that moment of insecurity, and then he jumps off that twig, and I'm always thinking, he takes a deep breath, and he moves his wings, and he floats for the first time in his life. And anyone in this room who wasn't religious, who became religious, and the first time he learned Gemara, the first time he put on tefillin, even, even religious people, the first time he did bar mitzvah, you wrap those tefillin. It looks like a tank. Each one has to be exactly in that love for your mitzvah. That moment when you find out that, 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 that Torah is real, that God is real, it's the craziest moment in your life. Some people, that, only, that happens too late. When they die, and the Shama comes out, and they, they meet God. So it's either two things. It's either the most terrifying moment of your life, when you find out that you lived a lie, because there is a God, and there is a Torah, and you messed up because you were fooling around your whole life. It's a terrible moment, death. Or it's the most amazing moment, death, when you realize I have wings. There is a Hashem. I did what I was supposed to. Oh my God. What the rabbi told me, the rabbi caterpillar, what they told me, it's true. That this body, that I only have two legs and I can walk, it's nothing. My neshama, free, I have wings. And they take you and they show you how to fly to Ganeiden. It's an amazing moment, death. As the Gemara said, it's, the, it's, it's being born. What do you mean it's being born? What do you mean dying is being born? And being born is dying. What does that mean? Because when you, when you die... You came out of the cocoon, you used your wings for the first time, you realize what an neshama really is. So I talk about this all the time. I butterfly, butterfly, butterfly. But I'm not going to talk about it today. I'm going to talk about a phone call that I got three months ago from a Down syndrome girl. She called me up. Actually, her mother called me up. She said, Rabbi Wallstein, my daughter wants to tell you a story. You go around everywhere and you tell stories. My daughter wants to tell you a story. Would you come to our house? Would you come and listen to my daughter's story. I'm like, I'm a little busy, Down syndrome kid. I'm going to go listen to the story. So I go to this girl, and I say, she's 22 years old. I say, I heard you have a story for me. She says, yes, Rabbi Wallstein, you're the rabbi that talks about the butterflies? I'm like, yeah. She says, I want to tell you a story of the moth. Do you know the story of the moth? I'm like, the story of the moth? You know, Down syndrome kid, I'm going to be nice. I'm like, no, tell me. She says, well, there was a grandmother sitting on a, on a, on a porch with her granddaughter, and this big fat gray moth landed and the little girl took off her shoe to smack it to kill it and the woman said no 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 no, don't kill it don't kill it don't kill it why she says do you know the story of the moth and the little girl said story of the moth what are you talking about grandma she says oh, I have a story to tell you when God created the world he created butterflies he gave, them all, he gave them all his colors all his colors and on the sixth day right before it, the end of creation God saw that the world's going to be bad he has to create a rainbow but he had no colors left now very important this is not a medrash. Don't repeat this. The Rebbe says there's a medrash like this. It's not a chazal and it's not a gemara. It's a story that a Down syndrome girl told me. Because I said over the story and some guy told me that his Rebbe said, don't go to Rebbe Wallace and share anymore. So I said, why not? He says, because he made up a medrash. I said, what's the medrash? He said, we looked all over. There's no such medrash about God and a moth. I said, I never said it was a medrash. I said it was a Down syndrome child that told me this. So I'm telling everyone here, it's not a medrash. Okay? It's not a medrash. So this is, what her, this is what she said. So God had to create a rainbow, but he had no colors. So he went to the butterfly. He said, butterflies, give me back some of your colors. I want to create a rainbow. And the butterfly said, no backseat. You gave us the colors. You're not getting them back the colors. Doesn't sound like butterflies, but that's how the story goes. And then a bunch of group of butterflies came flying back to Hashem and said, you know what, Hashem, you gave us the colors. You can have them. And this grandmother turned to this little granddaughter and said, don't you touch that moth. Because a moth is a butterfly that gave it up its colors for Hashem. Amazing. Down syndrome girl told me this. 
why does Hashem want, you know, no one tells me a story for no reason. Hashem, what do you want here? That's a crazy story. What do you mean you ran out of colors? You didn't run out of colors. What, what's going on over here? So I turned, I turned to God and said, who told you this story? She said, I don't know. Did you learn it in school? Did you read it in a book? I don't know. She wouldn't tell me. So I made it even deeper. So I thought to myself, what she's telling me is that I'm, you look at me, I'm Down syndrome. So I don't have colors. I look like a moth. But you don't know, Rabbi Wallstein, who I gave my colors for. The Neshama was talking to me. You don't know who I gave my colors for so that I look like this. Don't judge me. Because we're more beautiful than the butterflies. The butterflies show their colors. We gave up our colors for our show. And it was, it was, I was like, I walked out of there shaking. Shaking. Because I, I, I understood exactly what that soul was telling me. Exactly what that... Don't judge people by what they do or how they look because you don't know what they gave up to be where they are. And of course, I'm sure you all heard the story, a famous story with a Rebbe, where this woman, she, was a, she married this guy, she had Rachmanus, this guy was a terrible hunchback, terrible disfigured man. And, and nobody wanted to marry him in the city. And there was one girl, she was mamish, the Tadekista, and she saw past it all and she married him. And it was the greatest, greatest moment of his life. And he came home and he took off his shirt and she took one look at his back and she couldn't. She said, I, I, I can't be married to you. It's a famous story. And she said, I, I got to go back to my parents' house. This, this can't work. I can't, I can't look at you. And he said, would you go to the Rebbe first before you go back to your parents' house? She said, yes. And I went to the Rebbe and the Rebbe said to her, Go look in the mirror. She went to look in the mirror and when she looked in the mirror, she got a scream. Her whole back was disfigured. She looked like a hunchback. She said, Rabbi, Rabbi, what did you do to me? He said, I didn't do anything to you. She said, Rabbi, Rabbi, change me back. What did you do? You're a witch. What did you do? I never looked like this. What did you do? He says, go back to the mirror. She looked back in the mirror and she was back to normal. She said, what was that? He said, I'll tell you what that was. It's a famous story, I think from the Sons of Rabbi. He says, I'll tell you what that was. What day were you born? She said, her birthday. What time were you born? She said, 9 o'clock, Tuesday, whatever it was, on the 13th. He turned to the husband and he says, what's your birthday? What, what's your birthday? When were you born? Same day. What time were you born? One minute before her. He turned to, the, to this girl and he said, you were both online to come down to this world. And you were supposed to be a hunchback. And he saw that. He was standing right next to you. He said, a girl with a hunchback, no one will marry. Hashem, give me the hunchback. He said, the man that you married took your back. You're supposed to have is his back. You still want to get divorced? And of course, as the story goes, they stayed married and had healthy children and whatever it was. We don't know in this world who was standing, what neshama gave up for us to have what we had. Therefore, we cannot judge other people. And we have to understand that the moth is even more beautiful than the butterfly. Therefore, my tefillah to Hashem, this Yom Kippur, always when I open up the machzer, one of the things that you say to, on, on Shabbos, you're going to say, the avoda that they did in the Beis HaMikdash, it says, Mare Koyin. When the Koyin came out of the Beis HaMikdash, he was like the sun. And the, and the people were, the, 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 the whole avoda and the Beis HaMikdash, and the Koyin was gorgeous, and, and, the, and the, 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 the thread that was red turned white. And it was like, when you read that voice, it's like you're there, it's like amazing, a butterfly. The Jewish nation was gorgeous, was beautiful. Gold and, and Kedusha and health and Kohanim and Levian and, and everything was unbelievable. We were a butterfly, the whole world looked at us. Wow, check them out. 2,000 years later in Gullus, we're a moth. We don't have any colors, everybody hates us. We don't have a base on Mingdash. 
My Tilt Hashem is, but we're more beautiful than they were in those days. Because we gave up our colors for you. We're suffering because of Gullus. We're suffering because we're Jews. We're suffering for you. Baruch Hu love us like the moth. Because we're more beautiful than the butterfly. Everybody have a good Yom Kippur, and a meaningful Yom Kippur, and an easy fast. Thank you. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.